2 Corinthians chapter number 1. I'd like to begin in verse number 8. The Word of God says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Let's read verse 10 once more. Who delivered us from so great a death, doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Father, I pray that you bless now the preaching of your word to the hearts of your people. Lord, we love you tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not going to re-preach my message from this morning. It took me probably about 40 minutes to preach this morning, so we wouldn't have enough time. But I do want to take a few moments, and just for the sake of those that might not have been able to be with us this morning, uh, refresh your minds concerning what we talked about. Now, we have been preaching, we started this morning preaching on the idea of a threefold deliverance that Jesus Christ has provided for us. Or if you prefer this title, you could have called it Delivered from So Great a Death. If you notice what Paul says in verse number 10, he gives us three specific ways in which God has, is, and will deliver us. He says, who hath delivered us from so great a death. That's past tense. And then he says, and doth deliver. Now, that's present tense. And then he says this, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. That's future tense. Or we might say this, that Paul speaks of a past deliverance, of a present deliverance, and of a promised deliverance that is soon to come. Now, how many of you know this, that Jesus Christ, He's the same yesterday? Amen? He is the same in how He deals with our past. He is the same today. He can deal in our present. And He is the same forever. He will always be the same. Uh, We have a God that the book of Isaiah says inhabiteth eternity. Uh, If you were to see things the way God sees things, there is no real past, present, or future to God. Everything's in the ever-present presence of God. And uh, God, the the past is just as as immediate to God as the future is and as the present is. Uh, God is able to touch every moment in time without exerting any effort whatsoever. That's the reason that the book of Revelation calls Him the Lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. What does that mean? It does not mean that Calvary took place before the world ever was, but it means that in God's eyes, in His experience, in His understanding, it was a finished work already. And I'll go ahead and admit to you, we're dealing with some metaphysical things that are far beyond what my little pea brain can, can conceive and understand. But I believe it when I understand that God is, has worked in my past, is working in my present, and will work in my future. We shared this truth that uh, there are times that the Bible describes us as having been saved. We have saved, uh, been saved. You know, the Bible says, uh, it goes along a big, long laundry list of all this wickedness and uh, vile things and gives a big list. And then it says, and such were some of you. But now are you washed, now are you sanctified. In other words, we have been saved by God's grace. But then there's times the Bible says we are being saved. There is a present work of saving and delivering that God is doing in our life. Now, that does not mean that that past work is incomplete. But that means that that present work deals with our present moment in time. And then the Bible says, gives us places where it says one day we're going to be saved. And we're going to talk a little bit more about those this evening. But we mentioned this morning about our past deliverance that He bore our sin. 
Now, the Bible tells us for he was delivered for our offenses and uh, describes in Isaiah 53 how the, the uh, iniquity of us all was laid upon him. We also noted how he became our sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Then we talked about how he has buried our sin. Uh, in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, says, Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So God has delivered us in a past tense way. He has dealt with our past. Then we talked about, out of Romans 6, how that God has a present work of deliverance that He's doing in our life. In other words, uh, listen, God saved us, but just because we're saved, that doesn't mean God's done working in us and dealing with us. And we talked about how Paul shows us that he saves us from sin's brokenness. We've been buried with Christ in baptism. We're raised to walk in newness of life. In other words, however broken that we might be, God is able to bind us up and to remake us for His glory. And He has dealt with sin's broken, uh, brokenness and breaking effect in our life. We talked about how He uh, is delivering us from sin's bondage. How the lost man, uh, when, he, when you're lost, you're free from righteousness. You have no ability to do righteousness. But when you're saved, if the Son has made you free, you're free indeed. Now you have a choice in how that you live. And uh, we can choose to do what's right. We can also choose to do what's wrong. We'll suffer the consequences. Every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Amen. Uh, but uh, we can choose to do what's right. And then we talk about how God delivered us from sin's blindness. You know, when a, lo- a lost man only knows how to do what he thinks is right. He has no standard by which, beyond uh, the greatest authority in the life of a lost person, is humanity and their standards and their beliefs. That's the reason we're seeing today all of a sudden they're legislating immorality and sin. Well, why is that being allowed in our society? Because there's no greater bar, no greater measure, no greater authority for men to look to to say, doesn't matter what the law says, this says that this is wrong. And so all that the lost man has to measure and gauge his, uh, his behavior and his, his morality is what society thinks is acceptable. So it's not acceptable to go out and to cold-blooded murder someone, so they say that's wrong. But it is acceptable in society today to go out and murder an unborn child. So they say that's okay. Now, it doesn't matter how illogical that is, because all they have, the highest authority they have, is the standard of society. They believe and accept, Brother Al, for that to be okay and appropriate and right. And we spend a little time. I don't have time to deal with it. I wish I did. I might just preach on that instead. Well, we talked about in Romans chapter number 1 what happens when a man rejects the truth of God. You know, the Bible says that uh, when they uh, knew God, they uh, glorified Him not as God, neither were they thankful. So when a man's given truth, he has a choice what he's going to do with that truth. Truth leaves a footstep everywhere it walks. Nowhere is truth introduced that people are not changed and are not beckoned to respond in some way. You here tonight will be presented with truth, and you will have a choice what to do with that truth. None of the options are to stay unchanged. Truth always changes things, and we always have to decide what to do. Well, when the world, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful. The Bible says uh, their uh, imaginations became vain. In other words, when they rejected the truth of God, they had to have some basis of truth, so they became the center of their world of truth and their imagination, empty imagination, became the the, the construct of this system and body of reality and truth around them. And what happened? The Bible says, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. You see, if you have no standard for truth, you're going to figure something out and call it truth. 
And once you do that, if God can't communicate truth to you, then God has no means and way to reach you. And that's the reason uh, God can't get through their heads because their imaginations are vain. So he goes straight for the heart. And that's why the Bible says uh, that when uh, by wisdom the world knew not God, God uh, chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that believed on him. And so uh, they construct this idea of truth, and that becomes their standard, their morality. And that's all the lost man knows. You say, well, preacher, uh, what can we do about that? We can't do anything, but the word of God is able to, uh, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. We have been illuminated through truth. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Word of God brings light into our life, and it is a greater authority than man's morality. And so only through the Word of God can we be challenged. Our worldview can be challenged. If we don't have the Word of God, there's nothing to challenge our worldview. And that's why you see we live in a day of absolute relativity, of no absolutes. Your opinion's as good as my opinion, as good as her opinion, as good as his opinion. Is because who's the authority? Well, you see, the Word of God is the authority. And so if my worldview is wrong, the Word of God is able to challenge my worldview and to expose to me that I am wrong and to show me what truth actually is. You see, as saved believers, we're not blind to the reality of sin. We don't have to trust society to tell us what's right and wrong. We don't have to wait for some judge sitting on a bench in a black robe to decide something is sin or something's okay. We have the truth of the Word of God to reveal those things to us. We've been delivered from sin's blindness. Now, let me say a few things tonight about our promised deliverance that is soon to come. Now, God has delivered us in our past. God is delivering us in our present. But do you know that there are some things relating to the effects of sin? Because that's what we're talking about tonight. You know, there's a lot of things God, we have His promise, He's going to deliver us from. The Bible says that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Uh, The Bible talks about us being delivered from unreasonable men. Not, Not all men have the faith in delivering us from unreasonable men. Amen. It doesn't say unreasonable spouses. Somebody say amen to that, but from unreasonable men. And, uh, so uh, there are some things God has promised He will deliver us from, but that's not what I mean tonight. What I mean is concerning sin. Because I believe that's what Paul's talking about when he says so great a death. He's talking about the effects of sin upon humanity. And I want to give you three things tonight, and then we'll close. Let me say, number one, that we are promised one day to be delivered from sin's corruption. Do you realize that sin has had a corrupting and corrosive effect on humanity ever since man partook of the fruit in the garden. Uh, Man began to die at that moment. The wages of sin is death. And do you know that ever since then till now, uh, uh, death has reigned from Adam till now, Paul says in Romans 5, even after those that have not transgressed after the same similitude. Uh, Death has a corrosive effect. Death has uh, liberty and authority because of the presence of sin. Now, I want to be very careful in what I'm about to say. Just because someone's dying, that doesn't mean that they're some kind of grave sinner. But the fact that people do die is evidence of the fact that sin has an impact on the world around us. Uh, sin, death is proof that sin is present in this world, maybe not in the life of an individual. Now, let me, let me back up and say this, too. Uh, that's not to say that a person can't, because of their sin, bring death upon them early. It is true that sin has a corrupting and corrosive effect, even beyond the spiritual implications, even in the physical realm, that's true. 
Even in the individual's realm, that's true. Sin will bring death. The Bible says, lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So there's no question it can do that. But I want to be careful to not imply here tonight that if someone's sick, someone's dying, that it's because they're some great sinner. But I am saying this, that death is a result of the presence of sin in this world. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. You know, Paul spends a lot of time in Romans 7 arguing with himself. It's actually not Paul arguing with himself. It's the new man arguing with the old man. And they're going back and forth and back and forth. And we talked about a little this morning how that Paul says, you know, uh, that he has a desire to do good. But though he has a desire, he can't find how to do good. But when he wants to do good, he does bad and so on and so forth. And finally, in despair, in verses 25, 24 and 25, he says this. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? In other words, he's saying this, that it's because of my flesh and the corruptive and corrosive effect of sin upon me that I struggle with these things. Who has the ability to change this? He says in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only God has the ability. He describes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think most of you will be familiar with this. I just was in a a few funerals this past week, preached one of them, and, and we touched on this verse. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the mystery of the resurrection. Now, your Bible teaches that there's not a general singular resurrection, but there are two resurrections. There's a resurrection unto life, there's a resurrection unto death. I had somebody ask me this question the other day uh, about the, uh, where the lake of fire was related to hell and, and what it was. And I'll tell you my opinion. You know, opinion's the cheapest thing in the world. Everybody's got one. But I believe that heaven is a spiritual place. Right? John was caught up in the spirit. Right? Paul said, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. We have no proof that a physical body ever enters and exists in the realm of heaven. Uh, But what we do understand is this, that one of these days when we're resurrected, that we are going to be living eternally upon a perfect, cleansed, purified earth. And that will be a physical place, a place just as physical, this pulpit right in front of me, I can reach out and touch. I believe the same thing is true about hell and about the lake of fire. I believe that hell, being the place where those that have departed this life, estranged from Jesus Christ right now, I believe that their bodies are in the grave, but I believe their spirits are in hell right now. But you know, the Bible says, and we'll talk about it here in a moment in Revelation 20, that the sea gave up the dead that were in them, that at the great white throne judgment, all those that have died without Christ, their bodies are going to be raised. And they won't be given a glorified body, but they will be given a changed body. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Uh, because they're going to spend eternity in a lake of fire, and I believe the lake of fire to be a physical place. And they have to be given a changed body to exist for eternity there, just as you and I, as saved individuals, have to be given a, a new body, a changed body, to exist forever upon this perfect, purified earth. And so Paul is dealing with some of these mysteries in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to what he says in verse 51. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. Now, the word mystery in the Bible does not mean something that cannot be known. It means something that was not known but has now been revealed by Scripture. And so you've got to be careful. When we say mystery, we think of a big question mark. But that's not what Paul means. When he says mystery, he means something that the, the curtain's been drawn back on. They didn't understand it in the Old Testament, but now in the light of New Testament grace, we understand this. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, amen, there's one more trump after the one in the White House. Somebody say amen to that. At the last trump, and by the way, that's not talking about the trumpets of judgment in the book of Revelation. 
Uh, because uh, the trumpets of judgment, the very last trump in the trump of judgment is not the last trump. Amen? There's a trumpet even after that, and the Bible talks about the angels and the silence in the space of heaven. But I believe that when it says the last trump, it's hearkening back to those trumpets of silver we preached about maybe a week or two ago. And that last trump was meant to gather them together for a jubilee and for a feast and for a time of rejoicing and of consecration. It says that the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all, we shall be changed. For this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. Underline that in your mind or in your margin. The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've got news for you. There's coming a day. It won't be until the Lord returns, but there's coming a day. He's going to put every single funeral home out of business. I always tell them when I do a a graveside, you know, I I don't know, maybe I'm weird, maybe I'm morbid, maybe I'm messed up in the head, but I think a graveyard is one of the most beautiful places uh, on God's earth. Uh, Maybe it's because I spend a lot of time there, amen, I don't know, but, uh, you know, it it never fails, especially there's a few in particular that you stand at and you look at and it's just breathtaking. We just got through not too long ago doing Miss Imogene's funeral and we was up at the VA cemetery and I always, when I'm at that cemetery, it's just breathtaking to look at how beautiful and manicured everything is and well taken care of and everything's so organized and it just looks so, so pretty and so beautiful. And I always joke with the, uh, with the, uh, fellas that, uh, the caretakers and the, the funeral home people, you know, they put all that work into it. And I hate to tell them this, but there's coming a day when the resurrection and the rapture is just going to tear every bit of that beautiful soul all to pieces. Death has no ability. It could not hold Jesus. And one of these days, when we're raised like He was raised, it won't be able to hold us either. The effects of sin is death. Man experiences death. All over the world, you'll find it a universal truth. There's not a corner of this globe that doesn't have some form of cemetery, some place where those that have died are placed. And death's reign seems to be universal. The Bible teaches us that there's coming a day when the effect of sin, the sting of death is sin, has been dealt with on Calvary. And as such, there's coming a day when death will have no more reign over your life or mine. Listen to what the Bible says over in Hebrews chapter number 2. I wasn't going to turn over here, so you'll have to give me a moment to find it. In Hebrews chapter number 2, listen to what the Bible says concerning death. The Bible says, let me find it here. It may take me just a moment. Uh, In verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise took part of the same, that he through death might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. In other words, sin's corruption, the effect of death for the believer, has no fear involved but it'll have no effectualness one day because though it's true if the Lord tarries His coming, death will be able to claim our body for a short while. That is not the finality of the matter. That is not the end of it. The Bible teaches that one day you and I will be raised incorruptible and death can no more touch us any longer. That's promised by the Word of God that is eternally secure for those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say, number one, that our promised deliverance deals with our deliverance from sin's corruption. 
I want to give you another verse in First Thessalonians chapter number 1. And you can turn there if you like. We're going to be in a few different verses in First Thessalonians for a moment. And I want you to look down at verse number 10. The Bible says this. Well, let's, let's back up verse number 9. The Bible says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned from God uh, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice verse 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, the point in which this is made official is spoken of as past tense. This has already been determined and secured. Now, this is important for your theology because there's a lot of folks mixed up about this. The point at which this has been settled down is past tense. He hath delivered us. But the point, not just where it's been made official, but the point where it will be made effective is future tense because the Bible says wrath to come. Now, what's it speaking of? Turn over to chapter number 5 of 1 Thessalonians. I want you to notice Paul defines this. You know, the Bible's the best dictionary for the Bible. And the Bible's the best concordance for the Bible. And the Bible's the best commentary for the Bible. If we ever want to know what something means, we can go to the Word of God and understand it. What is this wrath to come that he's speaking of? Well, listen to what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Listen carefully. The Bible says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, let me pause there and say this. That that word day, that phrase day of the Lord, has very definite, specific, prophetic connotations and definitions and guidelines. Uh, That is not a generic term. When the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, it's not talking about the rapture. You can follow this all through the Old Testament. You'll find this to be so. When the day of the Lord is spoken of consistently over and over again as the day of the Lord, it is always referring to the day when Christ returns in power and in glory, when He makes Himself visibly appear in the eastern sky, when He comes with the armies of heaven that He might defeat the Antichrist. So this is not talking about that secret whisking away of the rapture, but it's talking about uh, the coming of the Lord in power and in glory. Now, that's important. And here's part of the problem. When people think of, uh, when they look at this and it says, The day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night, they assume that that means His coming will be secret. That's not necessarily so. What it's saying is His coming will be sudden. Now, remember what is in in context here of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. He's not talking about whether the world is going to perceive or understand. And that's where people get mixed up on their doctrine. They say, well, the rapture is going to be a secret event not known to the world at large. And that's true. And they say, well, if a thief comes in the night, he comes secretly. But that's not what's at at the emphasis here. What's at the emphasis is that he is going to come suddenly. And by the way, the same thing is true when the Bible talks about as it was in the days of Noah and as it was in the days of Lot. A lot of times people take those verses and try to apply them to the rapture. But you look at Matthew chapter 24, it's not talking about the rapture. It's talking about the glorious appearing. You say, preacher, what does it have to do with me? Well, it has a little bit to do with us, but it mostly has to do with the Jews that are going to be alive during that time. And, uh, of course, the book of Matthew is a kingdom book. Amen. It is a book that is written to the Jewish people. 
And uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't have things for us. Of course it does. But Matthew chapter number 24, it's not talking about the rapture. It's talking about the glorious appearing. And so when you look at that carefully, the Bible talks about as it was in the days of Lot, uh, that in Sodom and Gomorrah they were drinking and marrying and being given in marriage, and then all at once the judgment of God fell. The Bible talks about as it was in the days of Noah. It says that uh, up until the day that the door was shut in the ark, they were going about their business. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. And then all of a sudden the judgment of God fell. What it's saying is this, this world will be unprepared for the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Now, why is this important? Because the same people that were trying, are trying to confuse people today were trying to confuse people back then. And they were saying, well, the coming of the Lord has already happened. And Paul's saying, no, 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 the coming of the Lord has not happened yet. He says, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Didn't you mamas feel like that here lately? Some of you mamas have been having babies. Can't escape, amen. The Bible says, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. In other words, the world will be unprepared, but we as believers, we are prepared. And how are we prepared? Ye all are all, the Bible says in verse 5, the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God... Listen carefully, hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, because this is what's in the focus in First Thessalonians, is people are saying, well, the coming of the Lord has already passed, and now you've got people dying, and what's going to happen to them, and what's going to happen to those of you that are alive, and they were mudding the waters, putting all kinds of questions. And Paul says, look, God's not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake, meaning whether we're alive, or sleep, whether we die, we should live together with Him. Now, here's what I want to say to you tonight. I believe that the Lord has, is not only going to deliver us from sin's corruption, but I believe as believers that the Lord's going to deliver us from sin's confrontation. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, this thing of sin is boiling down and it's coming to a head. Uh, you can see it all around you. You can look at a world that is gearing up. I was just reading a news article the other day. There's a big push right now in the European Union to go completely cashless in their society. They want an entire society of digital currency. Now, that should bother us for a lot of reasons. But I'll tell you what I see when I see that. And listen, I'm not one of these people that's interested in trying to stick a title on people. People say, well, is the European Union going to be the one world? Well, is this, is that. i got news for you. Everything's going to be part of the world, one world empire. It's going to be a one world empire. And if you want to see what's happening, you don't necessarily just have to zero in on these people or that people, make this guy the boogeyman or that woman the boogeyman. You can look at the whole trend of the world and see that everything is moving towards globalization and towards a, a consolidation of power with a select group of people, with, a, with a, a, a place of authority, a seat of authority. One of these days, that man of sin will be revealed and he'll sit down in that seat. And all of this power will have already been consolidated into one place. And I believe there's a lot of things that go into that. But what I'm saying is this. You can look around and you can see the world moving towards that. 
We've never been more hooked up and plugged up than we are today to the entire world around us. Never before have our economies been more intertwined than we are today. Uh, there was a time when, listen, now Russia could do this or France could do that or Spain could do this and it might not overturn anything in, in East Tennessee. But we live in a day now where every single economic decision causes ripples somewhere across the globe. We live in a day with a truly global economy, whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, and whether we embrace it or not. And that is prophetic that this world would be moving in that direction. We're moving in that direction. Of course we are. The Bible says that there's going to be a one world empire. I wish I had time to take you through every scripture, but I, I, you'll just have to take my word for it and then go home and check me by your Bible. Amen. But uh, the Bible teaches that after the rapture, I don't know how long after the rapture, the Bible does not say. The Bible does not tell us that the rapture begins the seven year tribulation, but I think it is a, a, a fair assumption to believe that it'll be fairly close. The Bible tells us this, that uh, there will be a period called the uh, abomination of desolations. It's called Jacob's sorrows, uh, Jacob's trouble, in which for seven years uh, judgment will be poured out on this world. For the first three and a half years, there will be a peace accord. Everybody talks about praying for peace in the Middle East. I don't know why they say that. I know the psalmist said to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I, I understand that. I'm not against that. I'm not fussing at people that pray that way. But I, I, it's just interesting that everybody prays for a solution to this Middle East problem. If we read our Bible, we understand this, that there's only one, uh, the, that the next peace that's coming in the Middle East is going to be a false peace. And there'll be a peace accord, the Antichrist. And by the way, I believe that's one of the ways he's going to secure so much power. Uh, he's going to fix that thing that nobody could fix, theoretically. And he's going to provide a solution uh, somehow there in, uh, in Israel. I don't know what it, what's going to happen. I do know that Jerusalem will belong to the Jews. Because the Bible talks about a temple being built at that time. And you can find this in First Thessalonians, I believe chapter number 2 says that, uh, that the Antichrist, halfway through that seven-year tribulation period, that he is, well, I'll tell you what, we're so close, why don't we just read it? I, I would say we can probably find it very quick. Look in chapter number 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. When it talks about the falling away, it's talking about... I, I, I understand that we're living in a day of apostasy, right? I understand. I, I, I look around, I see the world is very laid to sin and so on and so forth. But I believe when it says that falling away, that's talking about during the tribulation period. And it says the falling away will come first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, he's going to be a secular humanist, at least at the beginning, or that is worship, so that he, as God, setteth in the temple of God. Now, there's only two ways in which the temple of God is spoken of in your Bible. When it's spoken of metaphorically, it's speaking of the body of the believer. We understand that the Antichrist will not be able to, to sit down in our bodies, so it must be talking about a literal temple. When it speaks of a literal temple, it is always referring to that, that temple mount in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, the place where Isaac was placed upon the altar, the place where the angel of God stopped the hand of Abraham, the place where Christ was, was marched from, the place where uh, billions of blood, uh, gallons of animal blood were shed, that place uh, there on uh, Orna's uh, threshing floor. Uh, that's going to be the place where the temple of God will sit. And it says... Uh, he, he'll sit in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, I don't have enough time to go through all of it, but the book of Daniel speaks about this and calls it the abomination of desolations that is to come. 
halfway through that tribulation period when he has allowed the whole world to entertain some semblance of religion. And he has seemed to be friendly towards religion. Halfway through, he's going to set himself down in the temple in Jerusalem. He's going to say, your God is dead. I am God now. By the way, the Bible describes that in relation to religion worldwide when it describes that one world religion called the great whore of Babylon that rides upon the beast. And the Bible says that the beast will turn and rend the whore of Babylon. What it's saying is that the economic and the political aspect of that one world government will throw off any sort of religious vestiges. And that will happen simultaneously with his proclamation that he is God and is to be worshipped as God. The Bible says the last half of that tribulation period is going to be so awful that if, uh, if the Lord didn't intervene, there should be none, uh, no elect, no Jews is what it's speaking about. No flesh would be saved. Uh, the Bible says that uh, during that time uh, that uh, people are going to crawl. They're going to run for the rocks, for the hills, for the caves. The Bible gives advice to tribulationary Jews to say this, that uh, at that time, if you're up on the top of your house and uh, that persecution starts, don't go down to your house to get a change of clothes. Uh, just run to the hills. Saying if you're out in the field, don't run back to the house to do anything. Just run to the hills and get away as quick as you can. What I'm saying is this, and I mean this as, as reverently and respectful as I can possibly say it, uh, that that persecution is going to make the Holocaust look like recess. It's going to be wicked, it's going to be vile, and it's going to be centered on the Jews. Why do you think anti-Semitism is so rampant in the day that we live in? There's not a corner of the world where Jews are not hated. It's epidemic. It's pandemic. It's endemic. Everywhere you turn, the Jews are a hated people. Now, to a degree, that's always been so, but I'm talking about countries that one time loved and protected the Jewish people are now beginning to hate them. There's places, in the, you know, in France, there's places in France where a Jew can't walk down the street without being spit upon. We okay? That's the world we're living in. Why is it that way? The world is gearing up for this persecution upon the Jewish people. There's coming a day, the Bible says, that God's judgment will be poured out. And in that time, where's the church going to be? Well, after Revelation chapter 4, you don't find the church anywhere else. In the Word of God. I believe we have clear scriptural authority that the rapture will take place before the tribulation period, not in the middle of it and not after it. I believe there's clear scriptural authority. And we have a thousand verses we could show you, but I think this verse would just be enough to say that the wrath that's being spoken of here is the wrath during the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's sorrow, of Jacob's trouble, and that we, you and I as believers, are not appointed unto wrath. Let me give you one final thing and I'll be done tonight. There's so much more I wish I could preach, but time won't allow. Turn over to Revelation chapter number 20. I believe that we will be delivered from sin's corruption. Death and its grip upon us will be abolished. We will be delivered from sin's confrontation. Uh, and by, you know, while you're turning there, let me just preach a little on this. I hope that's okay. You know how that seven-year tribulation period is going to end, right? The entire armies of the Antichrist will line up together. To take, upon the, to take on the army of our God. The Bible says that Christ will return in power and in glory. Revelation chapter number 19. In fact, you're almost there, so let's just turn over and read it. The Bible says in verse number 11, John describes it. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And listen, if you want to call me a white horse preacher, call me a white horse preacher. Amen. Because my Bible has a white horse in it. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. By the way, that's big F, little or big T, faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. 
And on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Now, I wonder who this fellow is. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And we wonder who that is. John's already told us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same as in the beginning with God in John chapter 1. And down in verse 14, he says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory, like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God is, uh, the, the Bible is the written Word. Jesus is the living Word. And while they are not synonymous in body, they are synonymous in nature. They are harmonious in intent. They are uh, synonymous in perfection and purity. Listen, this is part of the reason. And this isn't even my message now, but let me just say this. I believe in a perfect Jesus, so I believe in a perfect Bible. And I'm not interested in arguing with anybody or fussing with anybody or fussing at anybody. But it just don't make sense to me to believe in, in a perfect Savior but not believe in a perfect Bible. That just doesn't make sense to me. And that's really the heart of the argument today. Uh, people want to make it about the King James Bible, and I guess that's all right if they want to do that. But that's really not the heart of it. The heart of it is this. Do we believe we have the Bible or don't we? I believe we have the Bible, and I can show you where. I'm holding it in my hand right now. But those that claim that, well, it's a little bit here and it's a little bit there, it's a little bit here, it's a little bit there, and we don't really know what it is in this one, and we don't really know what it is in that one, what it really boils down to, what they're really saying is, we don't believe there's a perfect Bible, we don't believe God's Word is here. And that's really what it boils down to. If you believe God's Word is somewhere other than this King James Bible, then I'd love for you to show me where. Put it in my hands. Give me something to preach from. I don't want to hear about the originals. You don't have the originals. I don't have the originals. Nobody has the originals. The oldest things on this earth are not the originals. And the oldest things on this earth, by the way, that doesn't by extension denote purity. There's a lot of old things that ain't pure. Somebody say amen to that. Come to our seniors meeting. Amen. But what I'm saying is this. I believe there's a perfect Bible. And I can show you where. And if you don't believe there's a perfect Bible, that's fine, you can say that. But don't tell me you believe in an inspired, preserved Word of God if you don't believe you can put your hands on it and show it to me. Because that's just, that's just naive and that's hypocritical. If there is a perfect Bible, show me where it is. I believe there is. Nobody's ever been able to show me a mistake in it ever once. I believe this is the Word of God. Jesus is perfect. So I believe the Bible's perfect. And I believe it's been preserved. And I believe the righteousness of Jesus has been preserved. I don't believe the righteousness of Christ has been sullied by man's intervention or interference. And so this is the Word of God. And the Bible says in verse number 14, The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth go the sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus. And he will meet the armies of the Antichrist upon the field of Megiddo in the battle of Armageddon. By the way, that's a literal place. Uh, up near Jezreel, uh, uh, Napoleon called it the world's greatest natural battlefield. The Bible says on that day the blood will run so much that it will come to the horse's bridle. Now, you've stood behind, beside a horse, I'm sure. Most of the time it's about the height of your eye level. So for most of us, that's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of five and a half, six foot tall. And the blood will flow that day so high that it will come to the horse's bridle. That, we have been promised, will be there, but will not be there being judged. We'll be there in tow and in line with the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be part of that army in heaven. Now, let me give you one final thing over in Revelation chapter 20. I think I'm done. I keep saying that. 
and then I just keep preaching. I know, you might, I, if it bothers me, it must bother you. Look at verse number 11. The Bible says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And uh, they were judged, every man according to their works. Death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now listen to what it says in verse 15. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. That, that expresses something by implication. Which is this, that if whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire, that means those that were found written in the book of life were not cast in the lake of fire. Let me say that we will one day be delivered from sin's condemnation. Now, I understand that has already positionally been secured through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I am saying this, that we never have to worry that we'll ever spend a moment in hell if we've been saved by God's grace. We, it is eternally secure and settled that when sin's condemnation is finally passed, at this place there's no court of appeals past the great white throne judgment. There's no excuses that will stand upon that day. Man will stand before God barren and naked as who and what they are. And on that day, you and I, we will be present there, by the way. You say, how do you know that? Well, heaven and earth have fled away. Where else are we going to be? Amen? That's so, that's so simple it almost makes sense, don't it? Right? Heaven and earth has fled away. Where are we going to be? We have to be there. But we're not going to be there being judged. We will be present there. The Bible says the dead, both small and great, right? We're going to be there, but we won't be there as subjects for judgment. We'll be there as spectators to this event taking place. And we need not worry on that day. i got news for you. If your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you don't have to worry that somewhere you'll be called from the grandstands on that day at the great white throne judgment, that you'll be dragged before that tribunal, that you'll be weighed in the balances and found wanting and cast bound hand and foot into the lake of fire soon to follow the devil. Uh, you don't have to worry on that day if you've been saved by God's grace. Sin's condemnation has been dealt with. Christ took our place upon Calvary's hill, upon the cross of death and of suffering and of judgment. We don't have to worry on that day. It's not about, listen, it's not, it doesn't say, and whosoever was not found to be a really good person. It doesn't say, and whosoever was not found to be holding their baptism certificate on that day. The Bible says, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life. If you've been saved by God's grace, your name has been written in the book of life. And this matter is settled by God's grace. And we will be on that day delivered from sin's condemnation. We will walk away from the great white throne judgment onto a perfect earth that's been renovated by God's judgment fire. We will on that day go back to a place where the new Jerusalem will hover as a beacon, as a star above heaven. We will on that day go back into God's eternal bliss and presence and glory. We don't have to wonder how it's going to be. It's settled by God's grace. We will be delivered from sin's condemnation. Let me get a musician at the piano. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes.